Set the scene for us, pal. What's it going to look like in there in Barrie on Monday night? My dad's going to be sitting right in the middle of the couch. We've all moved out, right? Yeah. So now it's his whole, he can his really whole stretch domain out. there. Yeah. Uh, my brother now lives in the city as well. So he, he, I imagine, will be at home glued to the TV set too. No distractions going up to the bar or anything like that. I don't believe so. I'm just watching it at home. Unless you get to a game seven or something like that, you're going to win the cup maybe then. Um, but I do remember in 2011 when they did win the cup, like that was a moment, like I got to call dad. Like that was their first one in decades, right? And long time. And it was a long time waiting. I remember many times Boston Bruins, Hartford Whalers games being on the television growing up. And so that was a special moment. And they are, I am absolutely sure all in waiting for this one again. Well, it seems like they might be the only two people left going for the Bruins uh, <laughs> around here. Uh, anyway, in these yeah. parts. There's definitely not a lot of love for the Bruins in Leafland here. And maybe you could say because of Brad Marchand outside the Boston area in general, but doesn't matter now because they have made it to the final. We are here on tape to tape to preview the 2019 cup final. And it is an unlikely one. The Boston Bruins opening at home versus the St. Louis blues. We are of course going to go deep on both teams. Tom Timmerman of the St. Louis post dispatch will join us to give the blues side of the equation. And Matt Porter of the Boston globe will come on to talk bees. But before we get there, let's quickly eulogize the teams that had a great season, made it to the final four, but just couldn't take that last step and get into the final. Why don't we start with Carolina? It was a while ago. I mean, Rod Brindamore said it in, I think, right after the game. We overachieved. There's no way you can look at it. You can say, oh, this, look at it, these last four games and go, oh, that wasn't very pretty, but you take the whole picture on what went on here and pretty impressive. I mean, they have found some real players there in Ajo and Tara Vinan. Svechnikov's going to be fantastic. Yes. Uh, just getting started. There's questions. I mean, the goaltending is yep. going to be a big question. And I still think Carolina might be a team we see maybe make a move to try and, and add some scoring. The Niederreiter trade was a home run. But, you know, it might still be a team that uses that strength that has on D a little bit of a surplus there to try and still add a little more touch up front. Yeah. I mean, like you said, Nina Ryder was a big, a big cut and a big win, but he got one goal on 15 playoff games. So, you know, there, there is a question cause he was hot and cold in Minnesota as well. Like maybe how much had a hot streak for a uh, couple uh, months. Yeah. In Carolina. Like, is he going to come back and score 30, 40 next year? I don't know if you can count on that necessarily. So Fair. I would, I would still be looking for some scoring help and you still have, that huge strength on the back end. I mean, a guy we saw getting called up and put down throughout the playoffs, Jake Bean was a first round pick just a couple of years ago. This was just his first pro season. And I want to say he finished top three in rookie scoring among blue liners in the league. So like that's, that's another guy who's going to be coming up. Hayden Fleur, like, like there are players that are still going to be added to that blue line here in the next little while. So I don't think you can really rule out, you know, Dougie Hamilton maybe being traded. Justin Falk, again, he's always seemingly on the on the trade block being traded for some scoring help. Um, they were, though, one of the top scoring teams in the league from January 1st on when they started to turn a corner there. Rod Brindamore um, said this season, though, that he thought their best hockey came in the first half of the season when they still weren't scoring. So, Is that right? Yeah, I, I think you just need to, you know, they always had shot, good shot metrics. I think you just need to keep adding another score, maybe two. You still have a strength on the blue line to maybe get that in that's doable the the bigger question is definitely in net because i I would bet 
a lot that Curtis McElhinney returns. He's 36. He's a career-long backup. No one's going to pay him through the roof to come and play an expanded role somewhere else. Like, he's just got a good little spot there as, as a tandem goalie. Mrazek, though, like, it wasn't that long ago. He was tracking to be an elite goalie, right? In Detroit, like, it looked like he was going to naturally usurp uh, Jimmy Howard and be one of these top goalies in the league, and it absolutely did not happen. He imploded. He imploded there. He imploded in Philadelphia. Takes a one-year, one-and-a-half million-dollar contract to prove it in Carolina. And it's worth remembering, he wasn't that great in the first half of the season, right? McElhinney was good in the first half, bad in the second, and it was the opposite for Mrazek. Bad in the first, then got together in the second half. Exactly. And then he even started to slow a little at the end of the regular season. So there's this question, like, how how much can you really count? You don't want to bring in Mrazek and expect him to play 50 to 55 games. Like, he has to be a tandem goalie. But given the year he just had, maybe a team is going to come in and pay him a little bit more money or a little bit more term than Carolina would. And then you got to look elsewhere for your goalie. Cause again, like McElhaney, what you're hoping for 30 maybe games and not a heck of a lot more from that. So you need to find a starter. And I just wonder if Mrazek is going to become a little bit too expensive if they can't get a deal done before July one. Carolina, interesting to note, holds three second rounders this year and likely three next year, thanks to the Adam Fox trade, which they found time to do uh, during the playoffs. Assuming he plays 30 with the Rangers, I believe they get the 2020 second, or sorry, third rounder, three second rounders in 2019, three third rounders in 2020. So some flexibility there. A team that doesn't have a lot of draft picks is the San Jose Sharks because they've been pushing their chips in the middle, you know, they get that goal that shouldn't have been to win game three in St. Louis. They go up two one in the Western conference final. You're really starting to wonder if this is the year injuries. I mean, Carlson wasn't right. The whole no. playoff and, and obviously through the end of the regular season when he was on the sideline, you know, Joe Thornton after, after the series said I pulled my groin on the first shift yeah. against St. Louis. That's yeah. tough. I, I'm I'll be very curious to see what happens here. I mean, San Jose is going to come back next year and be a competitive team for sure. Absolutely. No no matter what. And even I I do kind of wonder, I mean, obviously they're going to have conversations with Carlson and there's been different times in the year where I thought, you know, we sort of assumed it would get done and now it seems to be shifting the other way. But even if Carlson leaves and Joe Thornton hangs them up, I mean, you have to think Joe Pavelski and the sharks are going to find a way to continue that relationship this is a team that's going to run it back and, and probably be pretty good next year too. They're not going to tear this thing down and rebuild or anything. That's not how Doug Wilson works. That's not how Hasno uh, Platner, the owner works. Like they draft so well, they, they have a, a good handle on their contracts. Uh, you know, they, they can find a way to keep being competitive. And, and the main reason for that is like, look what Timo Meyer just did in this season and in the playoffs, he was stellar. I, I would argue easily that he could have had a lot more goals, Andrew Berkshire was, I think he wrote it, he definitely told me, he was writing that uh, Meyer had the most slot chances in the playoffs. Hurdle was right there with him. Burns was was a big creator in that. So, you know, those three guys, Burns being the older one of those, like they still have a good core to move forward. That just It's just more is going to be put on the young guys, Hurdle and Meyer. Like I could see Meyer 
possibly scoring 40 goals. Sure. Like, why not? It's 22. Right? He's just getting started. Exactly. And, but then he's also an RFA. So you're going to have to sign him to a contract and he probably falls into that second tier of all these RFAs we're talking about. He's not going to be a $9 million player or anything, but if so, if you can get him um, with some term and a decent cap, it like that, you might look back on that contract as one heck of a steal a couple of years from now, if he keeps going, Joe Pavelski, no Elliot Friedman wrote and said on the 31 thoughts podcast, he was pointing out that, San Jose, when they have these UFAs, they sign them a year in advance with the exception of Thornton, who's kind of on this one, one way or sorry, one contract, one year thing. Um, but Pavelski did say at the exit uh, meetings that he thought he would be back. Yes. So, and that's the expectation, right? It's just it, the good thing is because of where his birthday lands, I think he's, if he was born 11 days earlier, he would have been a 35 plus contract on this next year. So you don't have to worry about it, you know, being tied to that deal, if he retires or if you want to buy it or whatever happens, like you can, you can get out from underneath that contract some way. Thornton, you would like to have back. Feels like one more, one more spin coming, right? Yeah. Like I think it's going to be, that's going to be a hard thing for him to do to walk away into retirement, especially without the cop. And especially this year, you were really, really so close. Uh, Eric Carlson tweeted about an hour before we came in here, thanking San Jose, the organization, the fans, sounded an awful lot like a guy who's not coming back and saying his farewells there. So I wouldn't bank on that. It's, it's a net. Like they didn't do anything at the trade deadline to find some help for Martin Jones. He was good for most of the playoffs. I thought like he's got a good track record in the playoffs, which is amazing, but he's inconsistent again. Like you never know what you're going to get from Martin Jones at any time. And, And in the regular season, he's proven to be a, at best, an average goalie, and he's probably a below average goalie at that point. And Aaron Dell, he's got one more year left on his deal at 1.9. You got to upgrade on him. That's the number one priority for this team after after Pavelski, who we assume is going to stay. You got to find something to upgrade in net. There are a lot of uh, possibilities out there. I did a story today on 12 goalies who maybe could be had via trade or free agency this year. I kind of have a feeling that Semyon Varlamov might turn into a bit of a value yep, pickup somewhere. Absolutely. Um, I don't imagine anybody is going to give him the same 5.9 he is coming off from Colorado with, but he's coming off of a, a bad season. But over the last two years, his five on five save percentage is right in between Freddie Anderson and Tuka Rask. Like if you, if you pay Semyon Varlamov two or three years at, what four and a half to five million dollars, maybe even a little less. Like that, that that could end Feels up being like a, a good steal. risk. Yeah, absolutely. injury issues, but again, you still have Martin Jones. You're not going to probably move on from him uh, at, at this point. And then there's also sitting out there. I don't know what's going to happen with Ryan Miller, but he's a UFA. Remember, part of the reason he went back to California and Anaheim was because his wife Noreen DeWolf is an actress. It's closer to for her to allow her to do her thing. It was a family decision for them. San Jose's in California. Sure. You know, if he wanted to try something else, make him push for the cup and didn't want to go too far away, San Jose's possibly sitting there. And he had great numbers with the Ducks the last two years. So there are options out there for the Sharks, but that's got to be the top priority for them. Before we flip to the final, just want to touch on a little bit of news. DJ Smith, named head coach of the Ottawa Senators, Won the Memorial Cup with the Oshawa Generals in 1415. Has been an assistant on the Mike Babcock Leafs ever since Babcock came to town. Seems like a nice fit for a team that is clearly going to be going with a lot of youth in the next few years. 
Yeah, I mean, they weren't ever going to get one of these big ticket guys, right? It's not a place anybody's looking to go to. Joel Quenville did not have Ottawa on his list. No, absolutely not. I'm sure Alain Vignon did not have Ottawa on his list. Um, I was a little surprised it wasn't given to Mark Crawford, given that situation, but I suppose it makes sense. You're trying to... I was kind of pulling for Jacques Martin. That would have been amazing, too. Yeah, that would have been amazing, too. Um, But DJ Smith, so... You have a guy, when he was coaching the OHL, his team beat the loaded Erie Otters team led by Connor McDavid, right. and that's kind of what he hangs his hat on. That It's what everybody remembers about him as a coach at that level. If there is something to be a little worried about here, it's that he was in charge of Toronto's penalty kill, and that was not any good at all. It probably should have been better than it was with the talent that they have. So he definitely has a track record worthy of taking a shot on as a new NHL coach for a rebuilding team. You know, he got to work with the kids coming up and he's coming from junior pretty fresh. So you could definitely do worse than that, but it's not a slam dunk that this is going to work out. He's not, you know, a, a guy who you can see tracking to be absolutely one of the best coaches in the game. It, it is very much a shot in the dark here. You see what you got and it's not a slam dunk because of that track record uh, with the Leafs. All right. Well, Ottawa and 29 other teams already looking forward to next fall, but there's still two teams with their eyes trained right on the here and now the St. Louis blues and the Boston Bruins, the last two clubs with a chance to win the 2019 Stanley cup coming up on the other side of the break. We will speak with Tom Timmerman of the St. Louis post dispatch to get the story of St. Louis, how the blues landed in the final, what it will take for them to win the first cup in franchise history. Stick around. That's coming up on Tape to Tape. The Tape to Tape podcast is brought to you by the next generation GMC Sierra Denali, complete with the world's first six-function multi-pro tailgate. Net sliding around on the way to pond hockey? Use the built-in load stop to help keep them in place. Loading what seems like half a team's worth of bags? The tailgate also turns into a step for easier access and has an inner gate that flips down for unloading all the gear you can fit. GMC Sierra Denali. We are professional grade. Welcome back to Tape to Tape. We are pleased to be joined on the line now by Tom Timmerman. He covers the Blues for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And Tom, before we get rolling here, just set the scene in your city. It's been almost 50 years since the Blues were in the final. Of course, they went there in the first three years of their existence. But uh, what's the vibe like around town right now? There are people that you never knew cared about hockey who suddenly... Uh, are like asking you about it. My wife went to her church group and it's like, oh, people are talking about the blues. And this has not been a discussion for them in previous years. But all of a sudden, everywhere you go, people are talking about hockey. It is the thing. And certainly this is a a Memorial Day weekend that's not happened very much. It's probably never happened before in St. Louis. At this time of year, um, you know, people are rabid about it. You just look at the numbers on our website, on, on the blog, you know, things that it's just, you know, the numbers have, you know, quintupled over the past, you know, starting with the Dallas series, really. And just to get to this point, it's what people care about. And it, it probably helped that the Cardinals are playing crappy right now. Yeah, but the Blues are, are where it's at. And it is 
And it's never been like this. Probably even 49 years ago when they were going, it was a different NHL back then. And they were, it was the team's third year of existence when, you know, the last time we were there. Uh, It was just a very different thing. But now, yeah, the city of St. Louis really is gaga over the Blues. And what do you make of that in a year where this team was actually last overall? I mean, you must just be shaking your head that five short months ago, basically, this was a team that could have been headed toward a sell-off. Yeah, so I mean, if you looked at what, you know, the emails I was getting or the comments on stories, it was, you know, fire Doug Armstrong, trade Tarasenko, take the C from Petrangelo. I mean, all of these things were what the fans wanted to do. I mean, there was you know, the lose for Hughes movement was in full swing and just write this season off. It can't be salvaged. Move on. And uh, yeah, and I went back I mean, I went back and I read some of the game stories that I wrote from earlier in the year and, and they were just brutal. And it wasn't that we were overreacting. I mean, you'd go into the locker room and the players would say, you know, we're, we're playing terribly. And they've and both Mike Yo and Craig Berube would say, you know, yeah, this team is not playing well. So it's not as though it was an overreaction. Uh, they they had, were not playing well. Now, I will say in their defense that, you know, they never had really long losing streaks in that early season stuff. They would throw in a good game every fourth game. And mm. you would see teams that would have eight to ten game losing streaks in the division. They, you know, Minnesota did that and Nashville did that. They hit bad spots. The Blues never hit a really bad extended stretch. They, but the problem was they would play a good game, and every time you thought, well, that's it, they've turned the corner, and then they would go out and lose seven to two, you know, the next day. I mean, they they lost in a shootout to Edmonton, and I remember the next day being in Winnipeg and thinking this is going to be ugly, but because of how they played all year, because they were so unpredictable, who knows? They could have won, and they went out and they beat Winnipeg one to nothing. So that's the thing. It, it was, you know, they were never, when they were bad, they were really bad, but they were never really bad for a long period of time, which was weird about them. So you always thought, you know, they're, they're hanging around, you know, but can't, you know, they didn't win three games in a row until I think into January. I, you know, so it was, it was just bizarre. So, you know, when they won 11 in a row, then you had to sit up and take notice. But even when that winning streak began, we thought, you know, they got games against Nashville and Tampa. They had two with Nashville and a game with Tampa at the beginning of their 11 game winning streak. We just thought, you know, they're not going to get past this. They're, they're going to, you know, they had beaten Anaheim right before the All Star break. And then they had these games coming out where they're, they're going to go 0-3 in those games. And that's, you know, it's going to be back to what we saw before. And then they just started winning. And it, was, it was something else. Tom, I would say in, in each of the three series they've played so far to get this, this point, I can think of one moment that it looked like they might lose the series or the series might get out of hand. And in, in, in San, San Jose, it was the hand pass goal. Dallas, it mm-hmm. was Rope Hintz's wraparound that was stopped by Jay Bomeister in the last minute of regulation in Game 7. And in Winnipeg, mm-hmm. Game 5, 15 seconds left in regulation. Yep. Jaden Schwartz, mm-hmm. who has been snake-bitten all year, finishes the regular season with 11 goals, whacks one out of midair, 
And St. Louis comes mm-hmm. away with the win there, take a 3-2 series lead. And I, and I want to focus in on, on Schwartz specifically. 11 regular season goals. He's got 12 in the playoffs now. And that one in game five against Winnipeg was his first. He then scored the first three goals of the next game. I mean, well, usually when you see a scorer like this, they're inherently streaking. You think they're going to turn a corner. And we were saying about this guy in January and February and March. And by April, we're thinking, okay, well, this is just a lost season for him. Was it just the bounces started going his way? Was it some confidence being instilled in him? Or what the heck has turned around here for Jaden Schwartz? Yeah, he clearly, during the season, had gotten to the point where he had lost his confidence. And you could see it. I remember one game where he, he was coming down on a, on a breakaway, and, and it was him and the goalie. And then, instead of shooting, he, he dropped the puck. I think Sammy Blay may have been trailing the puck. He dropped the puck. Rather than shooting on a, on a breakaway, he decided to let somebody else do it. And right then you knew, boy, the confidence on this guy is just gone. I mean, it, you know, everybody in the building was like, shoot the puck, and he didn't <laughs> shoot the puck. Um, but he, he is a classic thing of, of, you know, of puck luck where, you know, he had chances. He was in the exact same places doing the exact same things in front of the goal and the puck wasn't going in. And now he's doing it and they're going in. Uh, and so, you know, he admitted by the end of the year, he was ripping the stick tight. Uh, he was, you know, not confident out there and they've started going in and now, you know, he's as confident as, as he ever was. He, the Blues will tell you that away from scoring, he was doing all the things that Jaden Schwartz usually does, that he was going into corners and getting pucks and, and you know winning battles for it. He was doing everything that you wanted of Jaden Schwartz except score. Uh, and now he's scoring. And it's bizarre to think he's got more goals in the postseason than he had in the entire regular season, that he has two hat tricks. Uh, you know, you were one, this is a guy you're wondering if, you know, when the blues say, well, they're, you know, some of the high profile talent, which wasn't performing, they were going to have to cut ties with you. He was going to be a guy. And now he's clearly not a guy that you would consider letting go. Cause he is back to playing how he played at the start of the previous season. He got off to a great start in the 17, 18 season, blocked a shot, broke his foot, was out and was never good again last season. And that kind of carried over into this season. There's so many great stories about this team and, and individual stories within it. And and another one I want to touch on is is Jay Bomeister, who in 2002, when he was taken third overall, I think a lot of people expected one day he's going to be a big part of a Stanley Cup finalist, a Stanley Cup champion maybe, but probably not in the way that he's being used by the Blues. Um, you know, he really didn't have a very good year, and it sounded like he was very close to going on waivers. And now in the playoffs, he's he averages the second most even strength ice time on the team. He's he's being used in a shutdown role, and he's playing very well. He earned a, a one-year extension even from the team. Um, just just tell us a little bit about um, how, I guess, how close it was to his time ending in St. Louis and how that changed to where he's become, again, such an important shutdown player for the team. Yeah, Jay Bomeister is kind of the Blues incarnate. I mean, he represents what this team has turned around because at the start of the year, he was he was not good. I mean, and, and it was clear he was not playing well. He was out of position. He was, you know, I don't know how many pucks bounced into the net off of him, you know, because he was getting in the way. He was, he was in some ways doing more harm than good. And he kept saying he was fine, and the Blues kept saying he was fine. And then not long into the season when things weren't going well, Mike Yo said, well, he's not, he's not actually healthy yet. And, and like, oh, you know, <laughs> it seemed that way, but no one had ever said it. And then once they said it, it was like, well, okay. And then they scratched him a few times. 
you know, here's a guy, he was a very proud player who was a healthy scratch for the first time in a thousand games. I mean, that was rough for him. Um, but, you know, his, his hip got better. And as by midseason, when his hip was better, he was back to playing like what you thought Jay Bomeister would play like. Uh, yeah, but here was a guy who, you know, the fans wanted him waived. The, I always figured the Blues would keep him, but he was the guy that at the trade deadline that he would be playing in Calgary, uh, that they would get rid of him there because he's a, he was an unrestricted free agent. There was no way you could see him being part of the team going forward. Uh, and then he just started playing better and better and better. And they put him with Colton Pareko, and they formed a formidable shutdown uh, pairing. And, yeah, you know, he's skating fast. He's making plays. Uh, he's doing everything you want. He's the quiet team leader uh, for these guys. Brunich leads by example. He's uh, the only guy I think, that does, I think he's the only guy that doesn't have a beard uh, on this <laughs> team as they go into the playoffs. He says, I just, I just look bad. I, I can't do it. It looks bad. I can't grow up. <laughs> So he's confident enough to do that because they know I'm not growing a playoff here. Uh, but he's playing well now. And, um, yeah, they, you know, you, you don't know how that you know, extension, you know, are they going to regret it? You know, because this year it looked like when they, the original deal they gave him, oh, that was a bad idea. But I remember when he signed and I said, were you interested in, in the market? And he said, what, what's the market for me? You know, for a 35-year-old defenseman, there's no market. So, yeah, I'm going to take this <laughs> offer. So, um uh, I mean, classic Jay Bomeister, but uh, yeah, I mean, and here's a guy that, after all this career, finally is getting into the into the Stanley Cup final. He, he's lived, played his career for this, and you know, the players. I mean, Colton Pareko said he just gets goosebumps thinking about Bomeister after his whole career finally getting into a Stanley Cup final, and that that just seems like, you know, if he did get to a Stanley Cup final, it was going to be because the Blues traded him to a team that made it. Well, one newcomer to the Blues is also playing in his first Stanley Cup final is Tyler Bozak, a guy who holds particular interest here in Toronto. Uh, what has Bozak brought to this club? Playing on the third line, um, you know, had a really good series, three goals against San Jose. He's basically uh, going along at about a 45-point pace here in the playoffs, which is about what you, maybe you'd want out of your third-line center. What has he brought to the team uh, throughout the year and specifically here in the playoffs? His line of him, Pat Maroon, and Robert Thomas has turned into be one of the, there's only four to choose from, but one of the key lines for the Blues because they have done a very good job of getting the puck and keeping it in the offensive zone and cycling around and working it. And even if they don't score, they keep it in there long enough that the Blues can send out one of their scoring lines and get there. And so he's been very good. Uh, that line has been very good at that, and he's been instrumental on that as the center on getting the face off, on, on starting the play with possession and going from there. Uh, yeah, he's been, you know, he's a steady presence, but once they put that line together late in the year, it became a very pivotal thing on the on getting the blues to control the puck and to have zone time uh and he's done it he's been good on face-offs in key situations uh they put him out there for that he's been on the power play um you know they've used him in a lot of ways but you know he, he, as a third line center he's been uh, very effective and even at that line that line has scored more and part of this pat maroon is finally to, you know found his game and robert thomas for a 19 year old uh, is is going wild, and uh, and Bozak has been the guy that's kind of you know the glue on that line holding them together. Okay, I don't want to jinx anything here, and I, I I can think of two answers that you're going to come at me with, 
possibly. If the Blues uh-huh. do win the Stanley Cup, Alex Petrangelo skates mm-hmm. out, meets Gary Bettman, gets it, raises over his head. Who's the first player he passes it to? He might follow form and just go with assistant captains, mm-hmm. where Alexander Steen and, and Vladimir Tarasenko. Jordan Binnington might be deserving of it. Yeah, it's funny. In some ways, you know, you know, David Backus, who was on the other team, would be a, <laughs> I mean, he, 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 he and Petrangelo are very are very tight. You know, as, as Petrangelo has gone through a challenging year as captain, he, he actually has been in touch with Backus a lot to talk about, uh, you know, how do I get through situations like this? I think he's going to go with his assistants. I think he would go with Tarasenko or Steen as, as being. Who do you think would be the options? I, I thought it would either be Bomeister or maybe Pat Maroon. Bomeister would be, I think, would be the would be the other choice there, unless Maroon scores the game winner. But, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, Bomeister though would be a candidate because uh, and Petrangelo and Bomeister were partners for for many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, they obviously uh, have gone uh, you know done a lot together with both playing for Canada and playing for the Blues. Uh, that would be a choice. I, I think Alex though would go with tradition and, and go with and go with his uh, his alternate captains. I should say not assistants, but alternates. So one way or another, the season is coming to an end in the next couple of weeks for St. Louis. And like every other team, they'll have to turn their attention to the business of the summer. Can we assume it's a slam dunk Craig Berube as soon as uh, this series ends, you know, a matter of days after we'll be officially named uh, the coach of this team going forward? Yes. I mean, Doug Armstrong recently said that the, the list of job candidates for this is down to one. Um, so, uh, it is Craig Berube, you know, uh, I can't imagine what would get in the way. I mean, I think they've had talks. They have, you know, agreed that they weren't going to, you know, negotiate it out until the season was over, but, um, you know, it's, it's Craig Berube's job. I, in writing, largely stopped saying interim coach because it seems almost silly to say it at this point. Well, he still has the title of interim coach. He's, he's the coach of this team and the, the players love him. Uh, the organization love him. Armstrong says he's been great to work with in this time. And he, he turned around the team. He's probably not going to win the Jack Adams because of what Barry Trotz did. But the, the job he has done with this team has been, has been amazing. Now, the one thing I will say is, you know, you wonder if Mike Yo had been given another month, would this team have found itself? You know, but hmm. the, the, the fact is they have turned themselves around under Craig Berube. And, uh, and that's what they're, you know, Mike Yo is probably saying, I, they gave me another month because it was, seemed like just a matter of time until this team came together. And they didn't come together under Yo's watch. And it took them a while to come together under Berube's watch. But, uh, you know, if you look at the analytics, the, the goal numbers started moving up in mid-December. Uh, and, uh, you know, the team took off a short while after. They started playing better, and then they finally started winning, and, uh, and then they went from there. We'll get you out on one more as far as a summer outlook question goes. Um, I, I'm curious what the goaltending is going to look like for this team next year. Bennington is an RFA. Obviously, he's going to be around. Um, mm-hmm. But then Jake mm-hmm. Allen makes $4.35 million mm-hmm. and gets the cap for another two years. Now, we know that you need a mm-hmm. tandem of goalies to survive now. So you want to have two and probably even three in the system. But Vili mm-hmm. Huso, he, like, he was going to be the... Jordan Bennington before Jordan Bennington, but then he was hurt. So Bennington got his shot. He, he, I think is still a factor in here, although he had a terrible year in the AHL injury riddled Mm -hmm. and everything. Um, Does, Mm -hmm. does, does Huso's presence and Bennington's emergence make it at all possible that the blues look to move on from Allen? Yeah. I don't think that they can say Billy Huso is ready to be an NHL backup right now because he just, yeah, coming off this season, he had, this was supposed to be 
the year in which he was you know, going to be the full-time guy in San Antonio. He was going to get 60 games. He would be ready to go next year. And I, I think the plan originally was and Jake Allen would be the goalie and Billy Huso would be the backup and they would go from there. I, 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 we're almost at the point where you've got to think that Bennington has proved himself. I mean, we've all seen the history of what rookie goalies have done and how they don't always, within the next one or two years, play at that same level. Though Bennington's play, which has continued, that you start thinking, well, maybe, maybe he has proved it. Um, but they don't have a, an experienced backup in the organization, so we would have to. I think they've got to stick with Allen unless Jake were to come and say, "Look, I, I can I can see this. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be playing much next year." Can you make a trade for me? And they try to accommodate him that way. But I, I, Jake's the kind of guy in which he, I think he's going to say, I can beat Jordan Bennington. You know, the playoffs have gone the way they are where they're going to stick with one goalie, and he hasn't given him any reason to change. And, and Jake Allen knows, I mean, he, he told me earlier this year, look, Jordan Bennington has been the best goalie in the league for a long period. You know, of course they're going to play him. It'd be stupid not to play him, and I understand that. And I think Jake is going to feel to a certain extent, if you get into camp and they have options, he can beat that. He'll, he's a competitor enough that he can beat Jordan Minning. So I think without another guy, they would have to go out and get a guy who would be a, an experienced NHL backup for him. And so they'd be looking at getting someone like Jake Allen, who could be a number one goalie if they needed it. So I think they would keep Jake Allen unless Jake says he wants out. Well, it'll certainly be interesting when they sit down to talk contract with Bennington. Who knows? They might be sitting down with the Conn Smythe Trophy winner at that point. So, <laughs> they, they, <laughs> I, I, you know, I got when the Blues called Bennington up, they did not. He sat on the bench for I think sixteen games. They they didn't have back to backs, and they played Allen consecutively. So they weren't planning. They they were trying to avoid playing Jordan Bennington. When they called him up, and it wasn't until they had back-to-back games and didn't have a choice that they finally had to put Bennington in a game, and then it it changed the history of the franchise. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, a team that's been through what St. Louis has this year, full of great stories. Tom, thanks so much for sharing a few of them with us. It's been a pleasure being here. Glad that I could do it. That is Tom Timmerman off to Boston very soon to cover the Stanley Cup final. From the Blues perspective, and yeah, when you start talking, Rory, man, the 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 storylines really do just pile up with this team. And I have to say, I love that, you know, the Stanley Cup is obviously one of the most unique things about hockey, indisputably the coolest trophy in sport. And now in recent years, this fun conversation about where it's, where it's going to go first, who is going to get it after the captain takes it. And yeah, you, I didn't even think about Alex Steen and how long he's sure. been there now. Yeah. So many great options. I thought he would say Bo Meester, just based on everything Tom even outlined with, you know, a guy, don't forget he went ho- however many games, six, 700 before he even played a playoff game. Yes. Long, long time. And now here this veteran in the final, but uh man, what a year in St. Louis. Yeah, so Bo Meester was drafted in 2002. He didn't play in his first playoff game until the lockout shortened 2013 season, and he didn't get past the first round for the first time until 2016. So it's been a long time coming for this guy. And also, uh, just give us uh, one second here, dear listener, while I get this absolutely straight. Jay Bo Meester also managed to play 
one, two, three times for the world junior team in that period where they just couldn't win the gold medal to That's... save their lives came off. They, they had won like five in a row toward the end of the nineties. He plays in 99, 2000 and 2001. And uh, they just couldn't do it. So he's also, he's played 68 total Stanley cup playoff games to this point, plus 18 AHL Calder cup playoff games in uh, 2004, 2005, the lockout year. Never has he scored a playoff goal as a pro player. <laughs> Give me a Jay Bowieister game seven overtime winner, please. Man, <laughs> just even saying game seven overtime. That's still one of the things on my uh, hockey bucket list. All right. Well, that is the story from St. Louis. When we come back, we are going to dive into the Boston side of things. Matt Porter of the Boston Globe will stop by and fill us in on all things Bruin. Coming up right here on Tape to Tape. Looking to stream over 500 NHL games blackout free? Sportsnet Now is the product for you. Available to anyone over the internet, Sportsnet Now gives you 24-7 access to Sportsnet's channels, including content not available on TV. You can stream on the go or at home on your big screen from the most popular devices, including smartphones and tablets, Apple TV, Xbox, PlayStation, and Chromecast. Sign up for as long as you want and cancel whenever you'd like. You can also stream the NBA, MLB, Premier League, all your favorite Sportsnet original programming, and more. Visit snnow.ca for more details. That'll do it. The Boston Bruins will play for the Stanley Cup. Okay, we are back, and we brought with us Matt Porter of the Boston Globe. Matt, how are you doing today? Couldn't be better. It's a lovely time in Boston right now, and uh, certainly some very good hockey about to be played, so I'm, uh, I'm enjoying every moment. Well, we just had Tom Timmerman on of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and asked him what the vibe was in a city that hadn't been to the cup final in uh, basically 50 years. I imagine Bostonians must just be coming out of their skin with sheer excitement at the chance to play for a league championship. It's so rare there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're, we're we're starving here. It's been like, uh, I think it's been like 100 day, 110 days, I think, since the last championship parade. <laughs> well, so. I know Bill Simmons like, was talking about the Boston Slam at one point because the Red Sox <laughs> won the World Series, the Patriots won the Super Bowl, and it was like, Kind of maybe, kind of maybe possible that both the Celtics and Bruins could hold their titles. Huh? Boston or the Bruins are still trying to hold up their part. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do it right, I mean, you might as well go big. I mean, I think it's like you know, you start looking around at the the sports scene. It's like, well, what else can they do? Well, okay, well, let's have all the four teams. <laughs> let's have. I, I know, I know, nobody likes this, by the way. I know, and I don't want to sound like I'm gloating, but uh, it's been fun to watch. Hey, you're you're actually talking to two Red Sox fans. We just dropped in uh, the ah. wrong geographical region, so there you go. You get a little love there from us. Um, yeah. the, the, well, we'll start with a question you can't really answer here, just to keep you on your toes. But they've won seven in a row. They've kind of looked better each round uh, they've gone through. Is this ten day break going to help them or hurt them? Do you think? It's something that I think everybody here has been thinking about in, in some you know in some way, taking some angle on it. It's like my stance has kind of been the same. I think it helps them just because, you know, playoffs are playoffs and, and it's the most brutal hockey of the season. So, you know, you're a team that likes to play physical if you're, if you're Boston and, 
certainly guys are banged up. They've already lost a few guys, Kevin Miller and, and Chris Wagner. But you look at what rest could do for somebody like Zdeno Chara, who's still kicking at 42 and playing some pretty heavy minutes, uh, you know, every so often, you know, not a 28, 29 minute uh, guy anymore, but he's been up there in the 25, 26, even 27 range. So certainly good for him. Um, I think the big worry is to Rask. He was so good, so, so good this postseason, the best hockey he's ever played. And what now, you know, is, can he still be as sharp as he, as he needs to be? I have my theories. I think he's going to be okay, but you just never know. And there's a lot of people in this town that are thinking, you know, as soon as he gives up some soft goals, you know, that he's just the same old Tuca that he was in October, um, rather than the goalie that they've seen for the last two months here. So very fascinating question. I, nobody in the organization or, you know, the fans, uh, nobody's really seen this before, this long of a break. What is the latest on Chara? He missed game four against Carolina. Is he going to be ready for game one? Yeah, they think so. They, they had an open scrimmage uh Last night here is, uh, you know, Thursday night as we take this on a Friday. And um, he looked okay. He played the whole thing. Uh, it was two 25-minute periods, you know, no hitting. Uh, you know, nobody was running anybody. There was physicality. There was pace. It was good to see him out there. You know, Bruins obviously liked that. Um, we think it's maybe like a groin or something like that, something nagging him. Um, you know, just uh, just kind of reading the, between the lines there. Um, but, you know, that's, uh, he is 42. So, uh, you're going to get that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, apparently the rest uh, did him a little bit of good. Uh, so in the final here, you got St. Louis, who is the kind of the new kid on the block and Boston back again, you know, winning in 2011, getting back to the cup final, losing to Chicago in 2013. So you kind of think of the Bruins as, you know, this long standing contender. And then it's easy to forget. They missed the playoffs in 2015 and 2016. And then when they got back in 2017, the Ottawa Senators knocked them out in the first round. So that wasn't that long ago. So they've done this retool. How have they been able to get back to this level so quickly from being out of the playoffs two years in a row? Yeah, it was a, it was an organizational decision to just kind of take a little bit of a step back, you know, and I think part of that is a little bit revisionist on, on the part of, of the Bruins. If you talk to them, you know, they'll say, you know, we had to kind of take our lumps, but you know, part of that were, some signings that didn't really work out. They gave a bunch of money to Matt Bolesky. Louis Erickson didn't quite work out for them. Um, there are a few other signings and trades and things like that too, but they they did kind of opt to lay in the weeds for a couple of years there and not make big moves, um, you know, overall, didn't go forward to the deadline, that kind of thing. They were kind of just waiting to see what the next, you know, rebuild, what the next phase of this would look like. And the constant in the organization, you know, since you know, really the last, 15 years it had been Patrice Bergeron and um, you know, Zdeno Chara as captain for the last 13 years, they've always set the tone. So you have that bedrock. If you're the Bruins as your leaders, your guys that when the rookies come in, Bergeron and Chara, who they look up to, they set, you know, they set the tone. They, they control the locker room. You know, Bruce Cassidy is a third year coach. Now he doesn't even touch the locker room. This is Zdeno Chara and Patrice Bergeron's domain. Uh, They're very inclusive that way. So you have that. And you obviously have to add pieces around them and give credit to uh, David Krejci, Brad Marchand, Tuka Rass. You know, those guys have been here, um, you know, since the 2011 cup run, but Tory Krug since 2013. So what they were waiting, and you mentioned Ottawa, that was the first kind of run through for guys like Matt Grizzlick, Sean Corrali, Charlie McAvoy, and, you know, uh, came in the playoffs for his first, uh, first NHL action. 
a few other young guys to you know to mention there, like Jake DeBrusque last year, Dan Heinen coming through. Those guys went through a little bit of a playoff kind of run there, not long uh, last year and in 2017. So they got that experience. They you know now there's a something that they saw in front of them rather than just hearing about it and you know playing through. Obviously, it was big for them. So now they're just kind of ready, and they've seen uh, they've seen a few fastballs, uh, so to speak, to use a baseball analogy, and uh, now they maybe they can time it a little better now that they're in the cup final. You mentioned Krejci there, and just as the Bruins were kind of floundering a few years ago, I mean, I don't know if you would say floundering in terms of where he got to in his career, but it seemed like maybe his best years were behind him, and you know he was turning 30, and, and just a guy with a lot of hard miles on him, not a, a super big guy, but had been through the 2011 and 2013 battles, but man, what a resurgence, 73-point year this season and then I believe is uh, their points leader in terms of even strength points in the playoffs. What's been at the root of Krejci's, uh I think we can call it a resurgence. Yeah, for sure. And and really it's, it's simple. It's health. In those years we referenced you know, where he really was struggling in 14, 15, 15, 16, you know, he, he wasn't playing. I mean, he, you know, 47 games, um, in, in 14, 15, it was because of hip injuries. And, you know, for a guy that doesn't really play with a ton of pace anyway, you know, I'm not sure if how noticeable it was, but he was struggling to get up and down the ice in, in a lot of that, uh, in a lot of that time. And, and the hip was the big problem. He also had some knee trouble, some ankle trouble, things like that. And, you know, that can wear on you. Um, when he's on his game, he's one of the better, for my money, one of the better playmakers in the league, just his ability, you know, to see the ice make some passes, draw defenders to him, and, and, and open up space elsewhere. Few guys do it like he does. And he's different on this team, which, which plays with a lot of pace. Um, that's certainly not his game. And uh, his health, uh, in, in that he is on the top of his game now, and, and he set a career high in, in, in points, or tied his career high, and now 32. It's impressive there with what he's been able to do. It's given life to guys like Jake DeBrusque, who, you know, can, he's a, a second-year guy here trying to find his way. Can be a streaky score, but Krejci's been very consistent feeding him the puck, getting him opportunities. And incredibly, what we've seen in the playoffs, I think one of the better stories in the league here um, in this postseason is David Backus, who was a complete afterthought, scratched for the first time in his career, but now he's a factor on Krejci's line. Krejci's always liked to play with those bigger body guys, um, you know, who can kind of create a little bit of space for him, tie guys up, let him kind of work his magic with the puck. So we've seen Backus score a few goals even in the playoffs, and it's been a really good story. Obviously, he's playing the Blues, too, in the final, which uh, you know would be quite an ending for him. And, and this team's success has so much more to do than just what the guys at the top of the lineup are doing, isn't it? Like, you, you look at the trade deadline pickups of Charlie Coyle and Marcus Johansson, which have been grand slams. You look at Sean Corrali, who's got five points in 13 games and kind of an energy guy on that fourth line. Like there is, you're going to know the headliners, the marquee names and everything like that. They've defined Boston for so long, but there's a heck of a lot going on in the depth parts of this lineup, isn't there? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, you look at, you look at the minutes. I mean, Charlie McAvoy is up, he's, he's averaging 24 minutes, but you know, he's 21 year old, all situations, blue liner. I mean, Char is at 22 and then you look down, I mean, you know, that's it. I mean, they don't have guys that are playing 26 minutes. They don't have to lean on, you know, Marchand and Bergeron to play above 20. I think Marchand is just above 20, but, you know, Bergeron's 19 minutes, and that's that's pretty important. Um, you know, you look at the, the goal scorers. I mean, they've had 19 different players score a goal this postseason, which ties a club record, and 
they've uh, you know that, that was said I think in 1970 you know when they had that absolute wagon um, with Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito and Johnny Busick and all those guys. So their depth has been incredible. They've gotten big goals from uh, you know like guys like Sean Corrali. Um, you know, when you're getting that kind of production from your fourth line, I mean, that's pretty big. We could play your fourth line against other teams' top lines. That's pretty huge. You don't have to worry so much about matchups or, or chase those matchups if you're Bruce Cassidy. They're really, uh, they've gotten a huge lift from Marcus Johansson and Charlie Coyle, the two trade deadline additions. Those guys have created some really good chemistry on the third line with a defensively responsible second-year guy in Danton Heinen. And, uh, you know, we talked about the Krejci line. And then, Obviously, the Bergeron line—it's—it's it, it's, been—it's uh, been big for them. Um, hasn't always, you know, had to be the main—the uh, main factor, but certainly, you know, with that power play that they have is cooking along at 34%. So, pretty, uh, pretty decent results from from those guys. And the D has been uh, has been good too. They've had injuries. They've had guys in and out, but Stephen Camper, John Moore, Connor Clifton—you know, guys that I don't really know how many fans across the league really know these players, but. They've stepped in and contributed some pretty big minutes, and like I said uh, before, scored some goals. So it's been uh, it's been a team effort. We can't talk about the Bruins without focusing a bit on that big line you mentioned, Bergeron between Marshawn Pasternak. I mean, just the the past two years, they've just been uh, imposing their will on the league. Uh, Tuka Rask, I have to believe, comes into the final as the con Smythe favorite, but. Is one of those three guys, especially with a big final, um, really a strong candidate to win as well? I mean, Marchand's, along with Logan Couture to this point, one of only two guys who's playing at a point-per-game pace in the playoffs. Bergeron actually leads them in goals with with eight, and Pasternak's right there with seven. I mean, a, a big two weeks from any one of those, and realistically, it's going to be all three of them if one of them's having uh, a big couple of weeks, and, and they could be walking away with the MVP. Yeah, for sure. I would say, you know, Bergeron, just what he does, you know, anywhere on the ice. I mean, he's just so outstanding and, and goes up against the other team's top center and, and more often than not wins the, you know, wins that battle. If you look at, you know, any stat really from possession, shot share, I mean, things like face-offs, you know, he's always winning those battles. Um, you know, Marshan breakout candidate, Pasternak could, could break out as well. I, I would give my cons, my vote to Tukarask at this point, just, based on what he's been able to do. He, he just completely broke Carolina last last series. Not that Carolina is a team with elite finishers, really, but I mean, Rask was just outstanding, and they weren't going to beat him. And um, Columbus kind of the same way. He outplayed Sergei Bobrovsky in, in that series, and, and Bobrovsky had an outstanding start to the seat, to the series. Um, by the end, Rask was better and just you know stole those games, had a shutout in game six to clinch the series, um, and did the same against Carolina. So, very impressive, um, you know, in that regard. But yeah, I mean, for for my money, I mean, the, the line is they sometimes they they get a little too cute. Sometimes they look for the extra pass, and you know, you, you saw that against Carolina when you know they're giving up shots they probably should have taken. But um, you know, they have the ability to make those spectacular plays and get each other tap ins even in the heat of the playoffs. So it's uh, you know, if you can do it, why not do it? We'll get you out on this. We asked Tom the same question about the St. Louis Blues. If Boston wins the Stanley Cup, Dan O'Char goes and gets it from Gary Bettman, who is the first Bruin that he passes it to? I think there is no doubt it'll be David Backus. You know, and to see uh, you know the emotion on David Backus's face after the the Bruins wrapped it up against Carolina was you know, it was pretty poignant. You know, he was, uh, he was really wearing it. He, even when he talked to us afterwards, you know, you could still see the tears in his eyes. And this means the world to him. He was so close in 2016, um, you know, just uh, broke his heart that he knew 
that that was going to be his last year with the Blues when they lost to the Sharks in the final there, the Western Conference final. Um, you know, he, he, he knew that uh, that could have been his last opportunity, you know, and, and now he's, after this, the way this year has gone for him, being scratched, being, a, you know, out of the lineup, the pace, you know, increased so much and his legs just couldn't keep up. Um, but to, to have that resurgence inserted in the Columbus series, was played a, his usual heavy game, um, you know, chipped in with some goals. It's been such a, a rallying point for them. And uh, I have to imagine that there, there would be no question, not that he's on, quite on Ray Bork's level with Joe Sackick in Colorado in, in 2011, you know, passing the cup right to Bork. But um, certainly, uh, you know, every team has these kind of stories. And, and David Backus would be uh, the number one choice for Zidane Char after he gets that cup. Yeah, what a moment. That would be longtime captain of the St. Louis Blues, David Backus, now facing his old team, in the final, I love it when we can sum it up with, uh, you can't make this stuff up. It's so good. It uh, should be a great final. Uh, Matt, thanks so much. Uh, enjoy the next couple of weeks. Yeah, no question. Can't wait to get it going, guys. Thanks for having me. There he is. That is Matt Porter. He covers the Boston Bruins for the Boston Globe. If you want to follow Matt on Twitter, he's at, at Matty Ports, M-A-T-T-Y-P-O-R-T-S. And if you want to follow Tom Timmerman, he is at, at, Tom Tim, T-O-M-T-I-M-M. All right, Rory, you're almost out of your pain. You only have to make one more prediction this year. <laughs> okay. What do you got? Who am I jinxing in the Stanley Cup final? <laughs> uh, I've got to take the Boston Bruins at this point. Boston in six games. Just a reminder, we both uh, did a last-minute about-face on Boston yes. and East final. We were both ready to say Bruins and said, you know what, the hell with a Carolina. Yeah, I don't have the same doubts about Rask uh, that Matt yeah. did. Uh, yeah. I think he'll be just great. Their power play has been unbelievable, and I and I know that at this time of year, you know, the more important thing is your five-on-five five goals are going strong, but Boston isn't lacking there either. I, I don't know. I <laughs> This could really go either way. This is going to be a fascinating series. I love it. Um, I'm picking Boston. I'm pulling for St. Louis because they've been a second tier favorite of mine for as, you know, a classic original expansion team. Always pretty easy to root for the team that that never won. And we've been talking a lot about Pat Maroon and, yeah, I didn't really think about it from the David Backus side. Mm -hmm, Just for sure. What what a ride it's been for him and and what it would mean to 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 beat his old team in the final. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you're getting right to the end too of, of Zidane Ochara. Um, you know, there, is there an end there? Is there an end? <laughs> Are I we mean, sure. Yeah. Well, maybe not. I mean, I mean, he does have a contract for next he year. Does. So it's but not yes, like 42, 42, 42 years old. Yeah. I mean, this, this might be his last kick at the can. It's absolutely true. Well, I guess, you know what, just to make it interesting, I gotta say St. Louis. Um, I really thought after they lost, that game three and it seemed like they were coming unglued and it was just San Jose's time that the Sharks were going to make it through, but it's just yet another thing. St. Louis persevered through. So what the, Hey, I will pick the blues to finish the job. All right. Our plan is to come back at you after game four. There's going to be a two day break after game four. So we want to jump in and discuss what's been going on uh, in the final so far, we, we assume it will still be going after game four, but uh, stay tuned. I suppose <laughs> crazier things have happened in these crazier playoffs. things have happened. Everything has happened. It feels like in these playoffs, but we are coming up to the uh, finale. Now it has been a pleasure covering them so far. You can always find 
up-to-the-minute coverage of the Stanley Cup playoffs on sportsnet.ca. If you want to read a big feature on the Blues, check out Garrett Joyce's piece on how they turned their season around. You can find Rory on there basically every day. You can also find him on Twitter, at Rory Boylan, myself, at Dixon on Sports. Check back soon for more Glass Rattling Stanley Cup final action on Tape to Tape.